Well, it's time to start. Good evening. Another tremendous day out there today, wasn't it? And just as we're starting, the World Series game number five is getting ready to go, so I'm glad you guys came out tonight, and we'll see you next week. <laughs> going to be a quick Bible study tonight. We might stop at 8 o'clock. Wow. <laughs> wow. Anyway, we are in Genesis, and we're moving into day six. Uh, we've been seeing an unfolding of the creation. And what a, an awesome thing it is to see uh, that we know that's truth that God's revealed to us. He has set up a stage. It's a magnificent story that's going to be played out. This Creator has a tremendous story. And it's called, of course, it's called His Story, isn't it? His Story. History. And He's getting ready to bring on the main character. Man. Mankind. And that's what we're, uh, we're heading up to tonight. Everything up to this sixth day really has been kind of like what would be called a prelude. Just getting ready for the big uh, part of creation. It's the last day of creation. Creating man was the very object of what God had in mind here. His creative, creative purpose that has been from the very beginning. The first five days are really a preparation. He's preparing. And uh, he has a crowning work that's awaiting as um, he brings on mankind, yeah, we we have a construction job here that God's been doing, constructing the earth, right? And and because and he knows what at the end how good it's going to be, because he says it's very good. Uh, but there's a crowning part to that. So I, I think of John there as he's doing construction work on Penny's house, and she just can't wait. She knows what it's going to be, you know, and it's it's heading for that. Well, that's. That's what God's doing. Now, He could have all done it at one time and it all been done in a moment's time. But no, He does 24-hour day periods that uh, in, in, the, in the creation. And He puts all this together so that someone can inhabit it. And it's going to be perfectly prepared and ready for humanity. Every step of the way, the one main purpose is to have a perfect environment for Adam. Now, it's all for God's glory, but it's uh, also for mankind to uh, to enjoy, to live. So the creation of uh, the human race is the main issue in chapter 1, and everything will come to its culmination, and more space is given in chapter 2 um, to give more detail. That's really what chapter 2 is about. Uh, sometimes chapter 2 stumbles people and they'll say this is a, a, a different creation account. Uh, it, it really uh, bothers them. And all it is is just giving us more detail on what he did especially with man. So he'll expand on that. Well, I've got up here verse 24 and then a question mark this time. Of course, if you have your sheets, there it says 331. And I know that we won't get that far because I already told you there is a World Series game tonight. And so we're not going to stay here till midnight. <laughs> but um, we have been talking about fish and birds, you know, the sea and then the air. Uh, we're going to be talking about the land tonight and what's on it. So he brings forth the land animals on day six and also man. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on the land animals tonight. 
Uh, we're just going to kind of move through this enough to get to man and being made in the image of God. That's the one that I really want to hammer on. But we we can't uh, we can't forget about uh, these animals being made. Uh, let's uh, let's go to our Creator in prayer. Father, we thank you, thank you for revealing to us the real truth of how man got here and how everything else got here. Uh, despite the lie of the ages that has come through mankind, especially within the last 150 years or so, that has been taught as fact, and we look just at your Scripture and we realize that you gave us nothing but truth. And it is so totally against the way that man wants it to be. And we thank you, Lord, that it was the way that it is. It's the perfect way. And as we sit here tonight, um, as image bearers, bearing your very image that we would bring you glory in doing that for that is what we are made for in Jesus name amen Amen. let's pick it up at verse uh, 24 I think we finished off basically last week uh, with the fifth day and so we move into the sixth it says in verse 23 so the evening and the morning were the fifth day so we move into this grand last day of creation. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. So the insects didn't turn into um, rodents, and then the rodents into uh, what? Um, what? What's next? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And then finally into the monkeys and then to man. Uh, each according to their kind. It's amazing how many times that God keeps saying that in His Word. Each according to their own kind. He's just saying they're all coming from that. They didn't come from one little uh, what little cell. And uh, then you finally get to man. It's just crazy. That's just nuts. So what we have, we have a correspondence here. On, on the sixth day, you have it corresponding to the third day. You remember that? The first corresponded to the fourth, second to the fifth, and the third day corresponded to the sixth. And you say, how's that so? Well, on the third day, the earth was created. The earth was created. On the sixth day, you have living creatures that come to the earth in, in being created. They're made on that third day. Uh, plants were created on the third day. And on the sixth day, when vegetation and animal life are now even on the earth, then and they've been established, then man has dominion over all of that. The vegetation and the animals and the birds, everything. Man has dominion over all creation on the earth that was formed. So the third day and the sixth day, uh, that correspondence. Just before the final act of creation, which is mankind, he makes land animals for the final preparation. God creates these. It's kind of a higher animal form, you can say, uh, because the presence 
of particular animals are going to be important to man. Matter of fact, man is going to need these animals to help fulfill tasks that have to be done. Uh, animal power, horsepower. We even call that today in our cars, right? Horsepower. Horses and oxen. Oxen, you know, they're given for labor, horses for labor, cattle for milk and leather and all sorts of different things that you can have. Uh, those animals wouldn't be able to give man later on, after sin even. <laughs> but uh, God is preparing these. There's um, In verse 24, you have three different kinds. He breaks it down into three kinds. What do you have? You have cattle, then creeping things, and then <laughs> creepy, creepy things. And then what else? The beast of the earth. And he, so he does it in, in a real general way of dividing them up. And from the best I can gather from different commentators and different writers, they're pretty well in agreement. Um, they're living creatures. The cattle are, for instance, living creatures which man can domesticate or tame. So it's not just as as in cows, but it's any kind of animal that you could have for use that would provide milk, that provide um, things that uh, they would need. Um, even animals that could be ridden on. That they, you know, if they went a distance, they could ride on these animals. So they're animals that can be tamed. Animals that are to be domesticated to be used by man. They're, they're useful for men. So that's, a, that's a good thing. So God gives them that. Uh, really, up until the last um, century, animals, as far as transportation, played a big key role. Of course, we know the Great West that we had, the horses, <laughs> Pony Express and such. Uh, they played such a key role. Uh, another one is the creeping things got to like that. Creepy. But they're, they're small creatures, usually. Uh, they creep about on the ground. <laughs> Pretty hard to figure out. Um, or it could be a little bit bigger of an animal that is really close to the ground with no legs or really short legs. <laughs> what? A possum. That, that word keeps coming up, doesn't it? A possum. You didn't hit any on the way over here tonight, did you? <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> Boy, okay, charades. You guys ready? Word games. <laughs> spiders and bugs. Spiders, bugs, Halloween. No. <laughs> no I, don't I don't think that stuff came along until after the fall. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I would have liked to have thought. What? They they eat things. It's gonna be one of the first things you ask the Lord when you get there, aren't you? Right? What you does the deal with the lice? He knows what he was doing. They don't make sense to us. But actually, it says right here that this is before man is created, and before there's even sin by man. Uh, I guess. <laughs> Snakes, lizards, probably stretches out for a lot more. And you could probably think of rabbits, the rabbits that come in and eat all the uh, flowers in your yard and green things and that kind of thing, right? All your lettuce. Uh, in the Hebrew, one, one writer says uh, it means short-legged. 
animals with short legs whose bellies are not far from the ground. <laughs> you like that one? That's from a Hebrew person. Uh, <laughs> um, insects, rodents, amphibians. Uh, Leviticus chapter 11, verse 29 says, These are to you the unclean among the swarming things which swarm on the earth, the mole, the mouse, the great lizard, the gecko, which is a kind of lizard, the crocodile, the lizard, the sand reptile, and the chameleon. Well, it's based out of Leviticus 11.29, speaking of uh, certain unclean animals. So you kind of have a combination of those. You have moles, um, mice, reptiles, all those kind of creeping things. We don't really like too many of those at all anyway, do we? Some people actually make these as pets, lizards and such. General category for creeping things. You can see cattle are domesticated and are for our use. Uh, Beast of the earth, what are those? Well... They're four-legged creatures, probably. Never to be domesticated. Bears. Think of the zoos. Lions. Tigers. Giraffes. Rhinos. Hippos. Right? Uh, They're not really domesticated in the sense that you can really use them. I guess you can take them to a zoo and kind of tame them to a degree. But what about that act of two guys? One of them got attacked. I saw him on TV the other night. They had a lion for a while and just, you know, they've like the best of friends and all of a sudden kind of turned on them. Sounds like a human though. They can do that too, huh? They are what they are. That's what they are. They're still wild, aren't they? So you get three categories here that are really generalistic. He doesn't break down every kind of animal or different species, but he gives us an idea here are what they are. And some of them are going to be used by man. Others are just, you go, wow, Adam's first zoo, you know, that didn't didn't have to have cages there. I guess as soon as sin happened, they go, whoa, what are we going to do now? <laughs> yeah, it's just just as a distinction here in uh, the first uh, verse of chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So it does describe the serpent there in the beast and so he's a serpent which would be kind of like a creeping thing but it also said something about the the beast right yeah more crafty than any other beast I, I mean that or maybe that could mean word, a general all of animals yeah, land so animals yeah if it's the same word or same you know intention I don't know but I just happen to see that describing uh, the serpent the crafty serpent uh, more crafty than any other beast Uh, it's interesting that it says more crafty like almost to say that other beasts could be sort of crafty but this one is more crafty yeah he's like when you get the three I just thought I'd Point out no, that's, that's the word beast is there. I think that that's notable because there wasn't any other one that could compare to how he was. Yeah. Him being a, a higher being anyway. Yeah. And he came in the form of of that. Yeah. Uh, he was fallen, his fallen angel, but he still um, had quite the, the intelligence. Do you think the serpent was back then what we think of a serpent as today initially? Like um, 
Well, the reason I ask is because part of what Bob said, you know, he's more crafty than any of the wild animals. Um, and then, you know, after um, he caused Adam and Eve to sin, and then he said, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. Like, he almost had a place higher than them. And because of what he did... Yeah, he appeared as as one probably uh, a, a beautiful looking creature. For legs, he could use anyway. Legs he could use for upright. Yeah. After uh, yeah, after the the pronouncement of the, of the cursing on him, right? Yeah. Um, there was one thing that we didn't really get into uh, last week, but we kind of touched on a little bit, and then I'll move on to the creation of man. Uh, in Job chapter 40, here would be a, a particular instance of a beast of the earth. And I guess we did talk about this one, but it'd be good to go to it anyway. In uh, chapter 40 of verse 15, I guess, would be a good place. It's the behemoth, which is what we think that probably is a dinosaur. I... I'm bold enough to say that's what this is. Uh, Look now at the behemoth which I made along with you. He eats grass like an ox. See now his strength is in his hips and his power is in his stomach muscles. He moves his tail like a cedar, a huge tree. The sinews of his thighs are tightly knit. His bones are like beams of bronze. His ribs like bars of iron. He is the first of the ways of God. I mean, he he is the mighty one out there, this this particular animal. Only he who made him can bring near his sword. He's the only one that can even kill him. You know, it's like what human could take him down. Surely the mountains yield food for him and all the beasts of the field play there. He lies under the lotus trees in a covert of reeds and marsh. Lotus tree covers him with their shade. The willows by the brook around him. Indeed, the river may rage. Uh, uh, that's in Job 40 starting at verse 15. Chapter 41, of course, you have the Leviathan. That is the uh, uh, another huge creature that would come from the sea. So these would be representing huge animals with mighty power that probably were dinosaurs back at the time of Job. Job knew, uh, knew what they were about. And so they would be considered to be these beasts of the earth also, the huge beast that would even go bigger than the elephant. I guess the elephant is the biggest creature that we know of today, right? In the animal kingdom. Wild animals. And whales in the sea. At least it. Okay, now we go on to the greatest part of his creation. The highest stage in all the creation. David Wells, quite a philosopher in his own right and being a very sound theologian says if our culture is to recover from its narcissistic and nihilistic confusion we must articulate the biblical truth that the image of God in man is fundamental to man's relationship with God and man whether we contemplate man in his beginning or man after the fall or man who has been redeemed. What he's saying there is that we need to recover what man really is. Man was made in the image of God. And people are so bent on themselves, as Wells used, narcissistic, 
And uh, we need to articulate the gospel truth about what God did whenever He created man. And He brought forth the highest of His creation. Even though angels for a while right now are higher than us, one day we will be higher than them, as it's stated in Scripture. That's an incredible thought. Man is to bear the very image of God. We are image bearers of God, this Creator. That's what He has done. Nothing else in creation uh, does what we as mankind do. Let's read this, uh, at least a few verses here. Verse 26. Then God said, by the way, back in verse 24, God spoke, and then later on, He did it. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, we've seen uh, right at the end of that verse there in 28 where He talks about the... Uh, fish, the birds in the air, and then, of course, over every living thing that's on the earth. We've already seen that in the different days that he's created. In 26, when he says us, our image, he's talking about the Trinity. We're getting to that. Okay, ready? Here we go. Okay, you can't wait, so we're going to move right to it. <laughs> I know, this is the best part. This is good stuff. God speaks. That's fiat creation. He speaks, it happens. Uh, Latin word is fiat. It means let there be. Let it be. Let us make. Okay, now, Barb, what God is now doing is He's changing the language of this. He has been saying, then God said, let the earth bring forth. Right? Um, Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass. Uh, Verse 14, then God said, let there be lights. Right? Boom, they are. Now it changes and we see something very significant. Let us, let us, let there be, not this time, but let us make man in our image. Okay, at this point, God is becoming very personal. God is a personal God. He's not just some ethereal cloud that's out there somehow, some kind of uh, something that is beyond us, but He is a personal God. And because God is a trinity, and we're looking at this from the other side of the cross so we can understand trinity, and then we can look back in the New Testament and say, just like what Barb said, that's the trinity. But back at that time, Hebrew people didn't think of it that way. It was something that was there but it really wasn't to be fully understood yet. And we as Christians believe in the Trinity. Well, God is introducing Himself here personally as it is in the plural language. 
So God gets very personal. He's creating those who are going to eternally bring Him glory, whether they're in heaven or in hell. He creates everything for His glory. The ones who are in hell, you can say, what do you mean? How can they bring glory? Well, if you look in Romans chapter 9, where God is a sovereign God, and we see that what if He wants to create man um, where He is... um, Well, let's go there for a moment. Romans 9. Say this uh, a little bit more in a scriptural way. Nine twenty-two. What if God, wanting to show His wrath and to make His power known, that's about His glory, isn't it? What if He wants to do this? Endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Why? That He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy, which He had prepared beforehand for glory. A remarkable statement. This shows that God is absolutely sovereign. We as the clay have no right to say that the potter can't do that. Uh, It's all about His glory. If He wants to show His wrath, that's how He will do it. If He wants to show um, His power and make known the riches of His glory to others, He will do that. Uh, This is quite a sovereign God. But this this is the apex of everything. This is, this is where it's going into um, mankind, the story of salvation, and all the things that go with that. Now, John Calvin comments on this verse here about the language. And he says, God has been introduced simply as commanding. Now, when He approaches the most excellent of all His works, He enters into His consultation. Consultation. What's going on here? This means God is more than just one person. We know Him as three persons. We know He communicates within the Trinity. Each one of them communicates. And I believe it's unmistakable. It's no argument whatsoever. This is referring to the Trinity when He says, Let us make man in our image. Uh, when we look at it in the New Testament, we get full theology. We get it fully clarified. The theology of the Trinity is there, uh, even though it is evident in the Old Testament. And we'll take a few verses to show that the Trinity uh, is in the Old Testament, has always been there. B.B. Warfield, back in the late 1800s, for the turn of the century from uh, Princeton Seminary, made a comment on this about the Hebrews and maybe not quite understanding the Trinity. The times were not ripe for the revelation of the Trinity in the unity of the Godhead, although the Godhead of the triune God was always there, until the fullness of the time had come for God to send forth His Son unto redemption and His Spirit unto sanctification. The revelation in word must needs wait upon the revelation in fact. So this verse alone by itself, can't be a proof of the Trinity. But looking back, like we do, after there's been an incarnation, 
and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit into the whole body of Christ, this verse just shines out with a lot of meaning, doesn't it, Barb? So you saw that and you said, oh, that's got to be the Trinity. Let us. He's not talking to angels here. Angels are not creators. Otherwise, that'd make them God, wouldn't it? They're not creators. They didn't help Him create. He didn't need help. So the whole triune God did that. Now what we're going to talk about, something that we mention in here a lot, but it kind of escapes our modern teaching in the Gospel today, but it's called the Divine Councils. Now the Reformers from the 1500s on refer to this quite frequently. The Divine Councils. The Council of the Triune God before the foundation of the world and their communication. We don't have a lot to go by, but I'm sure they talked about a lot of things for an eternity. And I can't imagine how much that would be. But we get a little bit here in Scripture what they talked about before the earth was created. And of course, in eternity, it's like, okay, when did they do this? Are they saying something new that they didn't know before? Well, they're eternal. And God is never surprised by anything. Like, Jesus hears the Father speak and say, Oh, really? You're going to send me down there? No, they're in perfect agreement. And how this works out, and a lot of it's probably in anthropomorphism, which means it relates to something that we can identify with, but there was some kind of communication that went on. It means there was a plan. There was a plan that unfolded in the mind of God, And this is the plan. God perfectly loves, God the Father perfectly loves the Son, right? And of course, Holy Spirit too. God wanted to demonstrate His love to the Son. So He says in in a human way, hey, here's what we got planned. I want you to check this out. Here's what's going to (laughs) happen. I'm going to give you a bride. I'm going to give, as a father... And you are the son who have always been here. He was never created either. I'm going to give you a bride. uh, And by that, he would mean a redeemed humanity because there's going to be sin. And so therefore, he's going to have to redeem out of those ruined ones uh, uh, a humanity that can come along and honor the son and adore the son, to love the son and to even worship the son. That's what the Father wants for the Son of God. He wants a redeemed people to absolutely fall down, worship and adore Him and love Him with their whole being. That's what He wants for His Son. He wants the best. He wants a perfect bride. So literally, He's going to have to bring that redeemed humanity up to Him. Uh, eventually, to the glories of heaven. And there they live forever. Amen. That's the plan. <laughs> Perfect plan. It's going to come about, too. It's coming about right now. So, He creates the earth. He creates the whole universe. Everything that's in it. And really what it is, it's a stage for the plan to unfold. Are you grasping that? This is part of that plan before the foundation of the world. Now you can say, well, how can you prove that to me scripturally? 
this just sounds like a fairy tale. When we go to 1 Peter, and remember Peter was an apostle. Peter kind of knew Jesus, didn't he? 1 Peter 1.20 And it's speaking of Jesus here. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest, being made to be seen in these last times for you. So He is ordained before this world was created. And He was predetermined. So Jesus appeared in these last days for our sakes to die on the cross so that He could be our Savior, that He'd be our bridegroom, and we'd be His bride so that the Father would draw us as terrible, evil, wicked sinners, depraved, and draw us to the person of Christ who would pay for our sins and make us clean. And eventually perfectly clean. So those uh, those days, it it was all planned out. Before day one of creation, this was done. Before this creative week unfolded, redemption was already planned. It wasn't that He creates man and man sins and okay, God says, what am I going to do? What I've got to start thinking now. What am I going to do? I've got to start devising a plan. Oh my, I didn't know they were going to do this. <laughs> he knew full well. Matter of fact, he, he already planned a Savior for this. And I know what you're thinking now. Why didn't he keep them from sinning? Because he could have done that, couldn't he? <laughs> yeah. He promised long ages ago that he would choose some of these despicable creatures in their sin who had been made in the image of God, who were made very good, but because of sin, and that's in chapter 3, so we're not going into detail on that tonight. We'll save it for later. But He would give them the knowledge of the truth. The ones that He chose, He would give the knowledge, and He'd produce in them holiness, godliness, and He'd prepare them for the bride. So sometimes we wonder what's going on in this world, in our own lives, and why are we having to go through certain things. All He's doing is getting getting us ready for the wedding day. And there's a few chinks in the armor that needs to be brought out. And so therefore, He puts us to the test. And he's, He's granted us eternal life already. God already promised this before day one. So, well, who did He promise it to? Isn't that the next question? Well, did He promise it to the angels? They don't know. They don't really understand this plan of salvation. Because either you're a good angel and you never sinned, and so you don't know what's to, what it's like to sin, or you're a bad angel and uh, that wouldn't make any sense, would it? So He didn't promise it to the angels. But He certainly did promise something to His Son. Salvation for these creatures of mankind who would be His wife. 
Now let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Another great verse. 2 Timothy 1, 9. Verse 8 says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Are you ashamed of any of this news that we're looking at here in, in the Scripture? Nor of me, his prisoner. Don't even be ashamed of me, uh, Paul says to Timothy. But share with me. Second uh, Timothy one eight. Uh, I said nine, but I backed up a verse. But he, he tells Timothy this. But share with me in the sufferings for the gospel, according to the power of God. Share with me. I'm going through some sufferings here, and I, and I hope people aren't ashamed of me. Paul says. But I want you to share in my sufferings. And then he starts talking about this gospel and, and this God. Look at this plan. Ready? Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, a set-apart calling. Not according to our works. Okay, Not according to anything you've done. Not according to anything you believe. But according to His own purpose, and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus, when? You guys like that verse? That's whopping. That's fantastic. He saved us with a holy calling. He called us and He saved us. It was His own purpose. It was His grace. And it was done before there was even day one of creation. Before time began. Wow. What a God. What has He done for us? Amazing. Now, that means there's multiple persons, obviously. He's already shown that. In chapter 1, in verse 2. Last phrase. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. With that, we know the Spirit of God was involved. It was in creation, giving it energy. Then you go over to the New Testament. Of course, there's a lot in the Old Testament, and we're going to go to that. But if we go to John 1 through, in light of New Testament, we know without a doubt that this is the Trinity. John 1 1 3. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, face to face. Jesus Christ was, the Son was, or the Word was. Verse 3, all things were made through Him, that's Christ. And without Him nothing was made, that was made. So we've seen the Father create, we've seen the Holy Spirit create, and we see in John 1 that the Son created. And we look in verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is, the Word is the one who became flesh. The Word is God, or Jesus Christ. That's, that's New Testament. We don't have any trouble with the deity of Christ. Now we, we go over to the Psalms, and we see a lot about the Son of God. Uh, about Christ before He comes in the flesh. Psalm 2, verse 7. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. 
You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. There is Yahweh saying to Christ, You're my Son. This is, this is about the Son of God here. Um, that's how the Psalms written a thousand years before Christ. But that's one. Now that's, you can say, well, isn't that pressing a little bit? Well, let's look in the same book, chapter 45, verse 7. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. God the Father is speaking to the Son, and what does He call His Son? God. He was anointed, and that means to be, it's Mashiach, or what? Messiah. Or in the New Testament, Christ. Anointed. And that's what Christ means, anointed. He's anointed as the prophet, the priest, and the king. Chapter uh, 110. Verse 1. We have a lot about the Son in the Old Testament. Matter of fact, it's all about Him. He's the star. The whole Bible is. Verse 1. The Lord, that's Yahweh, said to my Lord. And this is David writing this. And he's acknowledging that he's higher than him, even though he's called, Jesus is considered to be the Son of David. Like in the book of Matthew. That means he came from the kingly line. But David recognized him as Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, David says, Adonai. Yahweh said to Adonai. Adonai means one who is the... um, He's Lord, he's Master. So Yahweh says to my Adonai, sit at my right hand. Right hand means power. It means being equal with. He is sitting on the throne with the Father. Equal with. Till I make your enemies your footstool. So that's a great deity verse right in the Old Testament. Go to Isaiah chapter 48. Now we'll go into the prophet section. We're just picking out a few here. Obviously, we don't have the time to go over them all. Verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am He. I am the first... I am also the last. Oh, look at this, verse 13. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth I created. And my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. That's how powerful he is. Uh, he says he's the first and the last. In in the book of Revelation, who's the first and the last? It's Jesus. He testifies to that. He's the first and the last. Or, there's a store known as that. Can you speak Greek? Alpha and Omega. Okay. So, now, uh, and I know I don't really have to convince anybody of this. We know that that's what it is. But in case somebody says, well, there wasn't a trinity in the Old Testament. And you can say, well, funny you should ask. <laughs> you can take them right here in Genesis 1, and if you want to expound on that, you can get some other verses. There are many more, but we, we go with Let us make man in 
our image, and this is the word we're going to stick on the rest of the night. Uh, we won't be able to go any further. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. This is beautiful. You guys ready? Okay. Uh, image and likeness actually are very similar. They don't have to really be separated too much. They're parallel words. Uh, matter of fact, in the Hebrew language, I understand that there's really no distinction between these two words. They're really one and the same. Uh, they're just repeated for emphasis, is what John Calvin says in his commentary. And that's very typical of Hebrew language. So we're made in His image according to His likeness. Or you can interchange them. That's really meaning basically the same thing. The word is kind of interesting. Spell that right. Yeah. No. There's an E here, isn't it? Selim. And it, it means, and I might have that on your sheet, a carving. Carving. We're carved out like him. He whittled us. He, he whittled man into his... He sh- we're shaped like God. And we're not talking physical. Uh, means we were created from like a pattern. A heavenly pattern. And this word is used, I think, 16 times, I think. Maybe 18 times. I think it's 18 times. In the Old Testament. This Zelem. And it it's dealing with uh, 11 times a statue to represent an image of, like uh, Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. Remember the big 90-foot statue they made of him? That was the same word. He said, oh, oh, oh my, what do you mean? <laughs> image. <laughs> Were statues of God? Well... That's where that cuts off, you know. But uh, in pagan literature, you'll see that word often, and it simply means because they would have statues for their leaders, and that would represent who they were. It's representing them. Uh, but in, in one sense, that's what we are. I'm going to put this out. We represent God here on earth. We're not gods. We're not little gods. And so you guys know that. I just lay that right out. Just in case, you know, I think you're getting me wrong here. You know, I'm not I'm not Shirley McLean here at all. But um man is in the very image made to glorify God and he's representing him. Only man in all of God's creation is in the image of God. In that in that sense. It was only man that was concerning uh, as far as the Trinity is concerned. Um, you can call it uh, an intra-Trinitarian type communion that they had. And that's what they were concerned about, ultimately. So we represent God kind of like vice regents here. We still have somewhat the dominion over the earth even though we really have a struggle with it because of sin. But um, we have a likeness. We, we resemble Him. Not... Not physically, but um, I'll put this word out for you. This is a good one to hang on to. Dignity. God gave man a dignity. Still there. Quite tainted. Um, Because of sin, man is depraved. 
But totally depraved doesn't mean you're as bad as you can be. It means it affected every part of your life. Your mind, your emotions, your will. Every part of that was affected because of the fall. But we still have the image of God there. We as Christians, we can say, well, yeah, we're being formed in the image of Christ. And that's true. We're being taken back to the way we were originally meant to be, and even more so when we're glorified. But even unbelievers are still made in the image of God. And everybody that is a person, whether it looks like it or seems like it, have a, a dignity that has been given them. Now, it's a shame how people treat it. They abuse the dignity that has been given them, but God has given that to all of mankind. So, that takes it into a different degree whenever we start thinking about other people and people who really grate us. They can be unbelievers and they can treat you like trash. But I'll tell you one thing that always helps just to realize that God made them in the image of Him. And boy, that'll humble you when you realize that God made them. He knows exactly what's going on there. Yeah, Barb. You know what else is really beautiful about that? And what is expounded upon in in chapter 2? But He spoke everything into existence, like you had said earlier, like it didn't require a lot of thinking, a lot of preparation, or a lot of care, even though we know He took care when He did it. But, you know, when He formed man from the dust and breathed the breath of life, his breath into us to give us life. To me, that just so beautifully shows how he did set us, you know, apart from everything else that created us in his image. It was a different kind of life than was breathed into, such as the plants and such. The life life of God was breathed into us. he, He touched us. Right. He spoke on the other ones, and on this is like there was a forming. Where there's a personal aspect behind this, and we're made in the womb. Who's doing that? Whenever I think of John three sixteen, I think of. Whenever I think of John 3.16, I try to think back to this uh, this whole creation of God and how He really did. He loved His creation. You know, for God, uh, in this way, loved the world. For God so loved the world. He brought this whole world, you know, for His own self and loved it. Yeah. And, yeah. Perfect love. You know, and so, I mean, that's, to me, that's the explanation of that love in that verse. Because, you know, it's kind of given in a general, you know, he loved the cosmos of the world, the cosmos. He made it, yeah. Why wouldn't he? So true. Yeah, why wouldn't he? Because everything that he does is good. He blessed and cared for, took care of you. Uh, another part of um, the image of God is the capacity for personal relationship. And you were kind of getting it right in there, Bob, on this. 
he made all of creation and he knew it was good. But there's a much bigger thing. He doesn't really have a communication to the rest of creation. They can't respond, even though it says you know, in Scripture, all of creation shouts and praises God and everything. But we know that's a... Is that an onomatopoeia? No. No, that's not... <laughs> no, that's a word... Okay, I... Yeah, I can't think of a word I need right there. Yeah. Anthropomorphism. And, yeah, that's pretty good. Sound good? But he wanted to have relationships with all of us. And as Christians, we have that, don't we? I mean, you can go to God anytime, and He just loves it when you come right up there and start talking to Him. That's what we were made for. He just, just eats that up. And so do we, don't we? I mean, we, It's like breathing. We, we have to pray. Well, that is a key. The image of God is about the capacity for personal relationships. Uh, back in the early church, there was an Athanasius, back in the 4th century, and he says, the Father, and this is really simple, has never been without His Son. At first glance, you go, yeah, big deal. But never been without His Son or the Holy Spirit. Never. They've always been in perfect union, communion, communication, always. So He never meant for man to be alone. He meant for man to have relationships. But sin kind of destroys that. Everybody likes to have parties and be with people and everything, but um, sometimes we um, we get very alone. And uh, there are times that we need to be alone, alone with God and just that. But man was not created to be like that always, it's like the way that God is. There's a couple of... About four minutes? That I have? Okay. I'll use two core, two key words here. There, and you have them on your sheets. There's the ethical and the ontological. Big words for something that's really simple. Ethical is easy, isn't it? Ethics, right from wrong. How about that? We are in the image of God in that man, even though he's not Christian knows right from wrong. And what they're trying to do is deceive themselves today and say there's no right and wrong. <laughs> there's no absolutes. But they know better than that. That's only for them. That's not for you. That's right. Because they want you to do right by them. Right. But they don't want you to do wrong by them. Yeah. Right. So therefore, it, doesn't, it, can't, it can't work. It still can't work. It doesn't make sense. It won't work. Um, ethical is righteousness. Uh, it's holiness. Um People understand sin. They don't want to talk about it. We understand holiness. Of course, the more you know God, you know what holiness really is. Disobedience, rebellion. Uh, We have the capacity to do what is right. Well, in Christ, that's really what it is. But as far as laws are made, man can do right things, even though he's still sinful. Um, I have a capacity to have a loving fellowship with people, a loving relationship with my wife, or you know those kind of things. Be able to communicate and relate to people. Um, we have the capacity to know God. We have the capacity to know Christ, to know the Holy Spirit. Um, 
I have this capacity as a person in the image of God to know what's right. And so that would be the ethical aspect. So that is part of the image of God and that we are, our ethical understanding is there. And so really people still have that because they know that laws are needed. Another one is the personhood. And that's where we get into the ontological. Ontological is really dealing with being. God is, is, a, is the being, right? He's a being. We are beings, human beings. Um, this is involving the, the mind, the emotions, the will, uh, that, that aspect. Uh, personhood, I guess, is the good way to put it. A being a, a person, or there are three persons here in the triune God. Um, one God exists as three persons in one being or substance. There's one substance there, three persons in this one being, though, right? Uh, and that's the essence. That's the very essence of who God is. That's the very reality of it. Uh, so God made us in His image so that we would be persons. Uh, persons who would communicate, uh, persons who are made for relationships. So we need others to have meaning. What if you were the last person on earth? (laughs) There wasn't anybody around. That would really be hard to deal with, wouldn't it? Have you seen some of the movies that they've made, you know, where there'd be one guy left? (laughs) Kind of interesting. We were never made to be alone. God has never existed alone. Never, ever, ever has He been alone. Uh, And uh, God made us to to talk to Him and Him talking back to us. Or vice versa. So you you get um, full light of this really when when you look at Christ. When you see him, I think Colossians three ten might be a good one on that. We'll we'll close out with this. And as you're turning, uh, Bob and I were talking about earlier languages are an incredible thing. Uh, when we talk communication, we're talking language, and we have a language here that each one of us knows exactly what we're talking about. How could evolution ever come up with languages? that people could communicate and down to very detailed things and to be able to understand what that person is thinking, to communicate it to them, and they know exactly what you're talking about. We're not speaking different words and meaning something different or making noises and grunts. I think that comes in the caveman theology, doesn't it? <clears throat> Some men go around like that, I guess, but... <laughs> Sometimes that I probably do. Carolyn probably say <laughs> as she's talking to me. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, verse ten, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of Him who created him. We have, we now are new creatures. We have the new man, and now it's a much fuller view. This image of God is seen in us through the person of Christ. We're not there yet. It's not seen all the time, but it's kind of nice when it is seen because other people see the glory of God because of that. We're working working on that. But um, it's amazing. It's amazing. And we're going to close with that.
Um, That's one thing about how man is supposed to do. He is supposed to bear the image of God. That's one of the things. The second one then would be he is to take dominion over this earth. Kind of blew that one. (laughs) We kind of blew that one. Anyway, thank you guys for coming out.